following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. So what I'd like to do is uh, take a few minutes um, to just take actually uh, a, a section or a phrase from the carol we sang earlier and kind of riff off of that a little bit. Um, we will go to scripture. We will, of course, talk about scripture. But I figured, you know what? It's, it's November. We're singing a carol in November. It's the first Sunday of Advent. And uh, last minute, I'm going to jump in and uh, take a few minutes to take us to the Word. So why not keep running with, uh, with the Advent theme and the hope theme? So that's what we're going to, to do this morning. In the uh, little town of Bethlehem's first verse, uh, the author kind of pens a picture and gives us a, a quiet village view um, of, of Bethlehem on the night that Jesus was born. Now, I, I don't know how historically accurate that is. Uh, from what I can glean from the Gospels is that it was actually probably a quite hectic time um, when uh, Mary and Joseph showed up there. Um, it required them, after all, to find shelter uh, in an animal stable rather than in a home or something like that. Um, maybe that's just because they weren't vaccinated. I don't know. Um, sorry, too soon. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but at any rate, they find themselves in uh, an animal stable because it's actually quite a hectic time in Bethlehem and the vicinity. Um, but whether or not um, it was a quiet and peaceful night in Bethlehem, uh, the verse nevertheless speaks to the fact that the people that were there that day had no idea that the Son of God would enter the world in human flesh later that evening. And so the hopes and fears of all the years were met in Bethlehem the night Jesus was born. That's what the author pens for us to sing. And so I just simply ask, is, is this true? Can it be true? Can it be that the very sum of human desires and woes, the hopes and fears of all of the years, that they would converge on the humblest and most nondescript places and times. So for just a few minutes this morning, um, I want us to consider maybe some hopes and fears, um, not from all of the years, but from a few pinpoints um, and snapshots in history, um, and then consider um, our Savior's incarnation um, and how this truly is uh, the summing up of hopes and fears even for us now. <clears throat> so, uh, follow me for a minute as we consider just a few snapshots of hopes and fears throughout time. Um, an easy one to pick right out of the gate um, is Israel themselves, right? Um, what was the perspective of the Jews when Jesus was born? What were their hopes and fears that night um, when Jesus was born? <clears throat> Simply put, um, the Jews were, at that period of time, um, occupied by Rome. Uh, Rome was pretty brutal in keeping them in subjection to them. Um, Israel, the Jews, found themselves as a pretty weak people. Uh, the Jews were scattered around the whole Middle East, at this time, um, they had been delivered from exile many years before, but things never played out um, and never returned to the glory of the days of prosperity and flourishing that they had 
um, before the exile, before um, the results of their disobedience to God's covenant. And so you had a scattering of Jews throughout the land, and you had just really um, a, a small amount that were living in Palestine at that time. The Jews were hoping for God to speak into his world again. It had been silent for quite some time. They were hoping that God would provide a deliverer for them, a Messiah, that this deliverer would free them from their servitude to the nation that was ruling over them, that this deliverer would place them back in their land, that it would be theirs, and that the glory of God would be evident in the land, that the peace that Israel had once had um, in the days of David and Solomon would return and even expand and be greater than those days. The Jews were hoping and longing for God to speak and God to act and God to fulfill his promises. In the midst of that, they feared that maybe this would never play out. They feared that maybe God had once and for all turned his back on them, that the disobedience of theirs was not um, overcomable. They thought that maybe their inability to remain pure and to perfectly follow the laws of God meant that God's promises would never really come true. And so you had um, groups like the Essenes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Zealots seeking to uphold um, and put into society there um, a certain way of understanding the law and keeping the law, thinking that if they could just maintain a certain realm of purity, then God would again speak and God would cause uh, their hopes to actually um, be met. So in this one little snapshot of history, when um, Bethlehem is sitting there and the Christ child uh, is born, these were the hopes and fears of the people in that village and surrounding that village. And yet they were feeling at that very time the pressure of Rome as Rome sent households all over Palestine to um, report for the census. <clears throat> Uh, jump way ahead, let's just take the hopes and fears of the author of the carol. So Philip Brooks uh, wrote this carol in 1960, or sorry, 1868. Um, he was an Episcopal pastor in Philadelphia and Boston. 1868 is when he wrote this, but he um, had been traveling in Palestine a few years before um, and had visited Bethlehem at that time. 19, 1865, 1865 um, is when he was traveling um, and found himself in Europe uh, and in the East. Of course, 1865 was a full year for America, where Philip Brooks was from. Um, he had been a vocal supporter for the North during the Civil War. He had been very outspoken against slavery in his work and ministry. And he had watched um, and served um, and ministered throughout the Civil War to its end um, and then to the assassination of uh, Abraham Lincoln soon after this. And so within a matter of months of these things taking place, Philip Brooks found himself in Palestine um, and actually on the week of Christmas um, rode with some of the others that he was traveling with, uh, rode their horses from, um, not sure where he was, but a couple hour ride down to the village of Bethlehem one evening, and they toured the field that was said to be the field where the, the shepherds had, had been when the angels announced the birth of Christ. Um, and he 
um, rode around the village of Bethlehem and saw it on a crisp, clear night. Um, and that stuck in his mind uh, while he uh, traveled and then as he returned to his ministry um, and then penned those words a few years later for um, one of his church's uh, Sunday school Christmas parties. What might have been Philip Brooks's hopes and fears uh, in 1865 when he was staring at the town of Bethlehem in 1868 when he was back and ministering and uh, writing this carol for his church? Was he hoping for things to come out of what had been the last four or five, six years of the country that he lived and ministered in? Was he hoping for peace? Was he hoping for unity? Was he hoping for there to be a movement past what had ravaged uh, the nation for the last several years? Was there fears that that would not take place? Were there fears that he could not effectively minister and pastor to his congregation um, in Philadelphia and then in Boston and that um, the strife and the animosity that played out um, in the cities where God had him would not in any way be overcome and a new normal would set in. What might Philip Brooks's hopes and fears have been that night in the 1860s? Let's consider ourselves for a moment. 2021, um, as we begin this Advent season, but we look back on another year um, and we see it draw to a close, what might our hopes and fears be? We maybe are feeling um, struggles and tension in different ways in relationships, um, whether it be uh, in our body, with family members, with neighbors, with people that you once um, had a close relationship with, and maybe you feel that is tense in one way or another. Maybe you are um, looking ahead at a new year and wondering um, what you might be doing for a job a year from now. Maybe you're in transition that is caused by things that are happening in our society now or maybe not caused by any of those things. You're just in some transition um, and you are wanting those things, but there, is, there are hopes and fears in the midst of it. Maybe you are struggling because uh, you have loved ones in difficult um, health circumstances. Maybe you yourself or the recipient of bad news and things that you're struggling with with health. Maybe some of your fears are that, um, much like uh, Israel, that you know God, you struggle to love him and to obey him, and that you feel your sin time and time again, and you feel habitually stuck in patterns of sin and unrighteousness, and you think there is no chance for God's promises to come true in my life. Maybe you are hoping for things to change in our country. Maybe you are dwelling on a way in which you think things could get back to normal for us as a nation, and you pine for what once was maybe on another year. Um, maybe each of us would pick different years of what we think um, uh, is what we need to get back to. There are myriad of things that might be the hopes and fears for us now. <clears throat> And yet, even those things are pictures of hopes and fears of different people far across the spectrum of history. We ask again, like, is it true that hopes and fears of us, of Philip Brooks, of Israel, all of these things converge um, in one place, in one day, um, in one person? Can it be true? 
on a Friday night, we, uh, as has kind of become a tradition for us as a family, uh, the day after Thanksgiving, we go out and we get a tree, um, and we bring it back and set things up, and we do our decorating. Our decorating for us is like changing a couple things on the mantle um, and putting up a tree. That's basically <laughs> Christmas decorations at our house, um, but we have fun doing that. We try to... Um, you know, drink eggnog, and it's like the first day we listen to Christmas music uh, in the house, and um, we enjoy this time. It's become a family tradition, um, but it also includes um, me inevitably wanting to just throw the tree out of the house when I'm trying to put lights on it um, and make the lights look symmetrical. Um, it's inevitably me, um, you know, telling the kids like, hey, could that, that fairy from your grandmother maybe go to the back of the tree? Um, and we can put the other ornaments up front, um, or like, why did you put two ornaments right on top of each other? Spread them out. You know, like my, my OCD um, like, uh, has me enjoying uh, the evening and also um, you know, uh, trying to just be like, okay, the lights can be wherever they are. It's a, it's a dead tree that we brought in the house, and it's, it's okay. It's going to be fine. Um, so uh, we do this. But one of the things that has become a, uh, a tradition for us as well is putting some kind of artwork up above the, the, uh, the fireplace on the mantle. Um, so it might be a phrase from a Christmas carol, um, or it might be a picture of some sort that uh, reminds us of something um, in, in, um, around, around the incarnation. Um, for several years now, we have had this, this painting um, go above our fireplace. Um, Scott Erickson, I think, is the name of the guy that, that did it, and he uh, copied off of somebody else that had uh, done a painting earlier. Um, and it's just called um, Eve with Mary. And I think, and I think about this every year when we, when we put this up, I think that this picture sums up uh, Philip Brooks's line. I think this picture, in essence, sums up how the hopes and fears of all the years could be met in Bethlehem that night. <clears throat> I'm going to just basically take a few minutes to highlight how that could be and then read you some passages of scripture that I hope in light of these things um, don't need a lot of exposition. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll highlight a few things as I read, um, but um, essentially call us to consider uh, the hope that we have in Christ because of the incarnation and also the hope that we have because he is coming again. <clears throat> the hopes and fears of all the years could be met in Bethlehem that night long ago because it was the reversal of uh, the curse. It was the beginning of the reversal of the curse. And when you look at this painting and you consider a few things, you see Eve there with the serpent wrapped around her ankle, and you see the fruit down there on the ground as well. Consider the fact that God had made all things very good. Eve was living in a creation where there was perfect fellowship with God, perfect fellowship with one another. They had been called to be fruitful and to multiply. They'd been called to fill the earth with the glory of God. And yet, through the rebellion of Adam and Eve, sin entered the world, uh, and that perfect fellowship and that peace was lost. You will remember, though, that in the midst of the curse that God pronounces on his very good creation, 
He said this to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So from the outset of this pronouncement, we see that things no longer will be the way they're supposed to be in God's very good world. In the midst of a right curse on the rebellion of mankind, there's hope, there's a promise that God will do a work, that he will take back his creation and make it right and restore it. There's a promise in the early chapters of Genesis that there would be one that would come from the woman, a seed. And this one that would come um, would ultimately take care of sin and allow God's intents for his very good creation to come true. And you know, as we read through Scripture, we see that battle taking place. We see that battle of good and evil. We see the hopes and promises of ones that come from the woman Eve. And as we read about them, we think, could it be that this is the one? Could it be that this is the promised seed that will make things right? And over and over and over again, we see that sin has its effects on these people, and they cannot be the one promised. But God, in his promise, works through individuals. God works and makes covenants with Abraham, makes covenants with his king David, um, and through these things he promises that he will make things right, um, and through them will come seed that will make things right. There will be a king, there will be a land, and there will be a blessing, and things will be right just as they have been in the garden. And so this promise plays out throughout the Old Testament, through the nation of Israel, God's people. They themselves are not the seed that can be the ones to fix things. Um, the prophets warn and promise that Israel will not be the people that will ultimately deliver God's creation, but it would be through them one that would come. Um, and so the prophets call um, us to see that the Messiah will come and make things right. Even in Micah 5, we have a little glimpse of the town that would welcome this promised one, the seed of the woman, into the world to make things right. Micah 5, the first few verses say, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. Speaking of the fact that the ones ruling at this time cannot um, be the ones to ultimately bring peace. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. In the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. This promise to Israel that one would come as a shepherd king, as the one who would conquer, the one who would make all things right, the one who would redeem God's people and God's creation, so that there would be peace once again. <clears throat> it was... Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, who spoke and prophesied at the coming of his son, John the Baptist, and understood that, indeed, 
um, through the pronouncement of his son, through the work of John the Baptist, would be one that would come and he would be the deliverer. Listen to what he says when he blesses uh, the work of God and he blesses um, his son and considers God's promises and the prophets of what the one that would come in the footsteps of John the Baptist would do. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Here we hear this call and cry that God would honor his promises. And Zechariah is filled with the Spirit and an excitement pronounces that, yes, this is coming to pass. After so many years of silence, God was going to work and he was going to keep his promises. And yet what Israel was hoping for was just a glimmer of what really was going to take place through the coming of the Messiah. It wasn't ultimately that they just needed deliverance from um, a people putting them in servitude in the land God had promised them. It was that they needed deliverance from their own sin. Jesus would come and announce this and bear this out. But it was through the redemption of Christ, it was through the deliverance that they had in Christ from sin and death, that there would be hope that God would make things right um, and that God's glory would indeed extend throughout all of creation and there would be a place for God's people and they would be ruled by a benevolent, perfect king and they would have perfect fellowship with God and with one another. Again, these were the hopes. And so it was God's plan that in the fullness of time, the seed would indeed come. He would be a conquering king, but he would first be a suffering savior. But it is through this one that the serpent would indeed be trampled on. Though the serpent would bruise his heel, though the Messiah would come not in immediate conquering victory, but in suffering and pain and death and taking on the curse and taking on God's wrath for sin, there would indeed be victory. Listen to these words from Paul in Romans 5, Romans 8, a couple other passages to just consider what our hope indeed is. Whatever our hopes and fears are right now, what they will be, consider what Paul says in light of the truth of the hopes and dreams of Israel, of the hopes and dreams we see in Scripture, in light of the true story of the world, God's good creation, the fall of sin, and the promised redemption, and God making things right again. I'm going to read Romans 5 and some of Romans 8. Hit quickly on a couple of verses that Greg read for us earlier. Listen to both the fact that God is fixing our problem, our sin problem, the effects of the curse, but that through the redemption of mankind, 
comes a glorious hope that he will make all things right, that heaven and earth will be made one again, and God's very good creation will come to be. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Here are these verses in light of the reality of sin coming into the world through man, salvation coming into the world through another man. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought about condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord great passage of scripture to read and consider even in light of a picture presenting these things he says later the middle of Romans 8 verse 18 for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. 
For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we await eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who, who, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. First Peter 1, again, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Glorious good news is that in Christ's birth, in his obedient life, um, in his substitutionary sacrifice, in his victorious resurrection, um, and in his reign and rule at the right hand of the Father, even now, we have the first fruits. We have the promise. We have the down payment that God is making a people for himself, that God is restoring and reversing and redeeming out of the curse of sin, out of our rebellion, and that through these things, he will make a new people, he will restore and redeem a new people, and through these things, the hope of glory will play out. All of creation will cease its groaning and will once again rejoice in a good father, and a good creator who will say that it is indeed very good. We have the picture from John, the end of our scriptures, that when all things are summed up and when our hope is fulfilled, and we no longer hope because we don't yet see in fullness, but we see in fullness, and we live in the fullness of God's promises and his kingdom, John sees what will be. He says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. The hopes and fears of all the years will be indeed summed up, perfectly taken care of in this time. But there was that evening, now long ago, that this truth played out in the beginning of God's good work to redeem his people truly and finally, and in so doing, redeem his creation so that God would dwell with man and man would dwell with God and they would be his people and him, their God. This fellowship between God and man, mankind with one another, would be met and would be realized. He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. 
To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. So whatever your hopes and fears might be today um, or in this season, consider the truth to them. Consider the maybe righteous longing in all of them. Rightly lament for things not being the way they are. Rightly pray that God's promises would come to pass and his hand would be evident in our time and place. That there would be ways in which we see justice and healing uh, and righteousness. But at the same time, understand if we cling to those as our hope, they're just temporary in nature. It is through the true story of the world that God is reversing the curse through salvation that is found in Christ alone. That true hope finds its summation. And the things that we maybe hope for temporarily or long to see right here and now are just at best an inkling of what his promises are that all things will indeed be made right. There won't just be a king and a kingdom and some people and a part of creation, but his very creation, all of it, will be God's, and it will be um, his subjects, it will be his kingdom, and it will be the place in which righteousness dwells. And so, folks, we find ourselves reflecting and looking back Um, at the incarnation and considering the longing and the hope that was God's people's at that time. Um, We do hope in similar ways and different ways. We long for Christ to come. We long for the Messiah uh, to return. But we do not hope as people that just cling to something that might be. We hope with full confidence because God has revealed his mystery It is known, um, and he has allowed us to see through the rest of scriptures that he is indeed making all things right. Our hopes and fears are met in the person and work of Jesus, and we can rest confident in him. So in this season, may we reflect, may we rejoice, may we prepare for a new year, but all along may we say, even so come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, take uh, these Simple truths, I'm at least expressed through um, the mouthpiece of a simple person, um, but use them to profoundly grip us, that we would remember again that our hopes and fears are summed up in, in Christ. God, may we see our Savior for all he is in this season. May you t- uh, give us time, um, cause us to make the time to reflect and the beauty of the incarnation, and that it was um, your work to enter history, to enter our plight, and to save us from ourselves. God, we desire today to be a people that are mouthpieces of this good news. As we hope, Father, may we not wait uh, just twiddling our thumbs and waiting for things to play out but may we hope confidently because we see in your word all kinds of callings to be about your kingdom, be about your will, to get to work with the things that you have called us to in light of who you've made us to be. So God, in this season, 
May our hope be made evident to the world around us. May our hope be a confident one that you are not just bringing things back to a neutral territory, but you are restoring. And when it is all said and done, and when we find ourselves again glorified and in complete fellowship with you, may we recognize that we now are people that have walked long history of redemption, and we can rejoice in you as our Lord and King, as a Savior, Lord and King. We thank you for our redemption, God. May we be people that tell this good news. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.